According to the American Gastroenterologic Association, GERD is the most common gastrointestinal diagnosis recorded on outpatient physician visits since 2006. What are the symptoms and what are the treatments for this common disease? And what is the association and likely progression to Barrett's esophagus and esophageal cancer? We are about to find out. Hello, I am your host, Dr. Prathima Sethi, and you are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. And joining us today is Dr. Anish Sheth, the director of the University Medical Center of Princeton's esophageal program. Hello, Dr. Sheth. It's great to have you here with us today to discuss GERD and its progression to esophageal cancer. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Dr. Sethi. Glad to be here. Well, let's first start off with discussing GERD, or gastroesophageal reflux disease, is uh, what is commonly known as. It seems like it's a really common term nowadays, and patients probably come in claiming that they have GERD. So what would you say is the definition of GERD? Yeah, so GERD, as you mentioned, is an acronym for gastroesophageal reflux disease and, and essentially refers to the constellation of signs and symptoms that occur when gastric contents, so that is mostly acid but other digested food items as well, coming up from the stomach into the esophagus, mostly due to a weakened LES, which is the lower esophageal sphincter. Okay, so what are some of the common symptoms that you see patients come in complaining of when they have GERD? I think symptoms can be broken down into into two big categories. There's esophageal symptoms and then what we call extraesophageal symptoms. And interestingly enough, and we'll get into treatment a little bit later on, but because the -the over-the-counter treatments are so effective now for the esophageal symptoms, such as heartburn and regurgitation, as a gastroenterologist, we're seeing fewer and fewer patients with these typical symptoms. Patients are either treating themselves and getting better, or their primary care physicians are treating them and they never actually make it to the gastroenterologist. What we are seeing more and more, however, are people who are presenting with extraesophageal symptoms. So this is a whole host of symptoms from voice changes, chronic cough, non-cardiac chest pain, difficult to control asthma. And so these symptoms sometimes draw patients to see other specialists, such as ENT physicians, cardiologists, pulmonologists. And only when they're not getting better and when there's a question of ongoing gastroesophageal reflux, do they actually make it into the, into the gastroenterologist's office. Oh, that's very interesting. What are some symptoms that primary care providers should be aware of? Are there any red flag symptoms that you think that they should automatically or immediate referral to the GI doctor? Yeah, you know, the red flag symptoms are, are, are pretty, it's a pretty short list, but certainly if you have somebody who has had reflux for a, a long period of time and has been able to manage it, say, with dietary changes and lifestyle changes or an occasional antacid, and now all of a sudden the symptoms have worsened in severity, they're happening despite those measures, and that, that's certainly one concerning feature that would really drive further evaluation. And then the other things that we, you know, we like to talk about with any kind of condition is, you know, unintended weight loss, specifically for the esophagus, difficulty swallowing. So patients that are not able to swallow initially solid foods can even progress to liquid dysphagia. And then any sort of gastrointestinal bleeding, obviously vomiting blood is a quite a dramatic example, but folks can also who develop, say, esophageal cancer, for instance, can develop dark stools and melena as a sign of a tumor. And so these are all things I think that warrant further evaluation and, and it's really not just enough to say, okay, let's give you an over-the-counter antacid or a proton pump inhibitor and see what happens. Those things really require immediate referral. That's interesting that you say that a lot of times the more common symptoms, you already find that patients treat them themselves or the PCP will just prescribe them the proton pump inhibitor or the antacid. So would you say diagnosis-wise, the PCP often just makes the diagnosis 
based on symptoms, history, or what is the true diagnosis? How do you really diagnose GERD? Yeah, I mean, GERD, really, there's, there's two parts. I mean, there's the clinical diagnosis, which is probably just as good as anything else. And I think it, the interesting thing about the diagnosis is that we almost sometimes make it not just based on the symptoms that people present with, but then their response to the PPIs and the, you know, the acid blockers, because these medicines are so good at taking care of acid that if a patient comes in and has typical symptoms, esophageal symptoms of heartburn after meals or while laying down, something of that sort, and you give them a proton pump inhibitor and they come back in two weeks and say, I have 100% symptom resolution. Well, you've indirectly there with the treatment made the diagnosis because it's a very effective, very specific treatment. So I would say for the young, healthy patient who that's the clinical scenario, that's probably all you need. Now, I think we'll get into a little bit later on with some of the new advances. There are objective ways to actually measure acid exposure in the esophagus traditionally, which was done with a pH catheter, measuring acid in an ambulatory setting for 24 hours. We have some newer things that we can talk about later on. But, you know, for most patients, it's a clinical diagnosis and then assessment of their response to the uh, proton pump inhibitor. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, and I am your host. Dr. Prathima Sethi. I'm speaking with Dr. Anish Sheth about the complex GERD patient and its possible progression to esophageal cancer. Dr. Sheth, now let's talk a little bit about the treatment of GERD. What would you say are some of the lifestyle modifications that a patient can make? So patients with mild reflux, we often like to, we always like to maximize lifestyle changes, but I think it, it can be the sole therapy needed for somebody with mild reflux, which is usually someone that has heartburn two to three times a week, uh, usually during the day, usually after meals. And so those things really come down to, number one, if the patient is overweight, uh, weight loss. Weight loss, obesity contributes not only to reflux, but also contributes to the complications of reflux. So again, that, that's number one. And then if you look at, you know, other things such as smoking, obviously smoking can contribute both actually to, to heartburn and reflux, but also the complications to esophageal cancer. Dietary-wise, we like to, you know, basically if you, if you go on a really strict anti-reflux diet, it often is not much fun because you're finding yourself eliminating things like alcohol and coffee and chocolate, tomato sauce, fatty foods. And so the real key is, is trying to work with the patient within their lifestyle. If you tell them off the bat you have to eliminate all of these things, you know, it's really hard for patients to follow that. So what we like to do first is look at their lifestyle, look at their diet, and say, are you doing any or consuming any of these things in excess? So if you're having, you know, three glasses of wine a night, let's try to cut that back to a glass of wine. If you're having three cups of coffee, let's try to cut that back. And I think if you're able to work in that regard, make it manageable, and kind of target, you know, sort of the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, I think patients often do very well with lifestyle changes. Another lifestyle change, which is very important specifically for people who have nocturnal reflux, is really to keep about three hours between supper and when they lay down. And for people who work long hours and may come home at 8 o'clock and eat dinner at 9 and sleep at 11, that's sometimes very difficult. So I think really talking to them about not eating a large meal within three hours of, of sleeping can really help control nighttime symptoms in particular. Those are all very good uh, points there. And what would you say medication-wise? Would you say over-the-counter medications are the first-line treatment and then go to prescription medications, or how would you approach that? 
Yeah, you know, it comes down to the frequency of symptoms. Again, if you're having somebody who has symptoms more than three times a week or especially who's having uh, symptoms at night, we usually just jump to the proton pump inhibitors, some of which are available over the counter now. But those are really the most potent acid blockers, and we don't usually have them try H2 blockers or antacids, you know, such as the magnesium or aluminum-containing compounds. We usually just go straight to the proton pump inhibitors because they're so effective, because they're safe. But again, milder symptoms, things that happen very episodically, say during you know a big meal on a Saturday night, if they're going out and having a few drinks and, and eating a rich meal, and that's the only time they have reflux, then you can sort of use the shorter acting antacids as your primary therapy. So three times a week and nocturnal symptoms are usually what I use as the dividing line, whether to, you know, whether to stick with some of the weaker medicines or really to go to a daily proton pump inhibitor in terms of medication therapy. And the main thing with proton pump inhibitors is that, you know, there's a lot of talk about some of the side effects and, and, and you have to really individualize it with the patient and really kind of keep them on the minimum dose for the minimum duration of time that is needed to either heal their esophagus, control their symptoms, and then, you know, try to get them off the medicines if possible. You mentioned some of the side effects of proton pump inhibitors. Can you talk a little bit about... Uh, what those concerns are? So short term, there's, there's a small percentage of patients that will be intolerant to PPIs because of interactions, say, with other medications, you know, the cardiac medications in particular, antiplatelet therapy. Those are really not necessarily side effects. They're just more interactions that may make that not the first or the best choice. And then some people will have a diarrheal illness. A little mild colitis can develop with, with these proton pump inhibitors. The real concern that I think people who are on them for years and decades have is, is some of the data regarding hip fractures and osteoporosis and, and bone density. Now, I think the jury is still out as to whether this is a real concern, but I think there's enough evidence to say that if you're going to have a patient on long-term proton pump inhibitor therapy, especially postmenopausal females, I think extra attention is warranted to their bone density. You know, in addition to the usual calcium and vitamin D supplementation, you may want to be more aggressive again if you find that their bone density over the course of several years is is decreasing. You can, you know, talk to an endocrinologist or or talk to the primary care physician about getting them on some other therapy to prevent that. And I think those are the, really the main concerns. Everything else in terms of hospitalized infections and people on PPIs are really more sort of targeted towards sicker patients, inpatients, and not sort of your ambulatory outpatient. So you mentioned earlier about some new developments in GERD. Can you talk a little bit about the new developments that are coming up? So I think there's two I'd like to sort of focus on. One is a diagnostic test, which is called a wireless pH test. It goes by the name of a Bravo pH capsule. And it, it, it basically has, you know, revolutionized and become the gold standard for objective assessment of reflux disease, both in terms of symptom correlation as well as overall severity. And basically what happens is that during an endoscopy, a small four to five centimeter little capsule is placed and just temporarily inserted into the distal esophagus. And so after the endoscopy is done, the only thing that's in the, in the patient is a small pH sensing capsule. They wear a recorder on their belt buckle. And for two days, so 48 hours, they're really encouraged to resume a normal lifestyle to exercise, to eat, maybe uh, trigger foods, to do things that they normally do. And what we do is we get a great real-life picture for 48 hours of what the acid profile is in the esophagus. Patients can press buttons on the recorder when they have symptoms. And so when that data is then uploaded two days later, we get to see exactly what's happening in their esophagus when they're reporting symptoms, when they're asleep, after meals. And really for a preoperative evaluation for patients, say, who have these extra esophageal symptoms where they may not get heartburn, but they may just have these chronic, you know, ear, nose, and throat symptoms, 
it's really the gold standard for really determining whether or not they need long-term acid suppression, whether they need anti-reflux surgery, and uh, has really helped my practice and I think helped a lot of patients as well. That's very interesting. Did you say that there was another development that you wanted to talk about? Or Yeah, exactly. And this one, this one kind of falls more into the, into the realm of, of therapeutics. And um, it really talks about, you know, we have to probably talk a little about Barrett's esophagus first. So, you know, everything we've talked about thus far has kind of been a symptom-driven you know, discussion about getting patients to feel better, which is obviously number one. But number two is really identifying patients who have Barrett's esophagus, which is the, a precancerous condition of the esophagus found in patients with chronic GERD. And the treatment in particular here is, is a radiofrequency ablation. So historically, what we would do with people with Barrett's esophagus is they would get periodic endoscopies, they would get monitored, and if they had progression to dysplasia, a precancerous state, and not quite cancer, but really heading in that direction, then the options were very limited. We basically would, would shorten the surveillance intervals, watch them more closely, and then when they re- reached the stage of high-grade dysplasia, they would be referred for surgical esophagectomy, which is a very you know morbid procedure, really changes people's quality of life. Now what we can do is if we identify somebody with dysplasia, either low-grade or high-grade dysplasia, we can then perform an outpatient endoscopic ablative therapy to actually eradicate Barrett's esophagus and actually prevent the need for surgery and in large studies have shown prevent the development of cancer. And so it's an exciting, it's an exciting advancement in the, in the treatment of uh, Barrett's esophagus. Yes, absolutely. That sounds much better than uh, the alternative for patients. So you mentioned Barrett's a little bit. So can you talk a little bit about the association relationship between GERD, Barrett's esophagus, and esophageal cancer? This is an evolving field. I mean, I think, you know, we don't know 100% right now what really causes one person with reflux to get Barrett's and one person not to. So clearly there's genetic factors, there are environmental factors, but right now the current guidelines suggest that really anybody with chronic reflux disease should be screened for Barrett's esophagus. And by doing that, we capture people who have these esophageal changes and we can then institute, again, more aggressive lifestyle or medical therapies to basically hopefully minimize the progression of Barrett's esophagus to cancer, the really current accepted rate of progression is about 0.2% per year. So if you take somebody with Barrett's esophagus, you can give them that number, which means that after five years, they'll have about a 1% chance of having developed cancer. And depending on how old they are, again, that lifetime risk is usually, you know, somewhere between 5 and 8%, depending on how old they are. So what we do is we follow them, we monitor them, and we look for really, det- you know, detection of, uh, of really cellular changes called dysplasia. And, and again, if they do, we can then talk about doing ablative therapies. Otherwise, for most patients, continued surveillance and uh, acid suppression, lifestyle changes, smoking cessation will be sufficient, you know, to prevent any problems. That's a great point. Thank you so much, Dr. Sheth, for being with us. What a wonderful review on GERD and Barrett's esophagus, and uh, thanks for your time. Thanks, Dr. Seti. I appreciate it. I am your host, Dr. Prathima Seti, and you've been listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. If you missed any part of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com to download this podcast. Thank you so much for listening.